Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Alan Joskowitz, the Director of Operations and COO for Dynamics Marketing. Alan is a highly experienced as a Director of Operations and Director of Information Technology with a demonstrated history of working in the wholesale, retail, and warehousing industry. He is skilled in negotiation, analytical skills, sales, retail, and databases. Alan joined Dynamic Marketing in 2010 and grew the company from $250 million in sales to $500 million. He also brought the company from a very old technology-based setup to a modern-day virtual network. While at Dynamics Marketing, Alan created departments for operations, HR, IT, and marketing. Alan also added member services far beyond just purchasing and selling products. Before DMI, he worked for the Federal Reserve, Big Pharma, and IBM. So Alan, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you so much for having me today, Cameron. Yeah, I'm um, super curious about what you did with the Fed. Uh, so I was in what they called uh, FRIT. That was the Federal Reserve IT. So that was in East Rutherford, New Jersey, where we have all the cash, um, which was exciting. Every day I'd come to work and I'd have to go through a, a metal detector and there'd be a lovely person with an M16 standing watching me the whole time. Uh, quite the experience. That's very cool. So tell us, DMI, what exactly are you guys doing in terms of the marketing agency? So we do all our marketing in-house. Uh, there's a lot of different options in the marketplace for, for how you handle digital marketing and social media. Um, and we made a decision a long time ago that because we are a co-op and you know the money we use at DMI is our members' money in essence. So we wanna do everything as fiscally responsible as possible. And we decided, look, why don't we bring someone in-house to not only be the uh, middle person for all the marketing for our members, for our own company, they can execute as well. And we save on that 15% fee that you'll get hit with or 20% fee that you'll get hit with on top of the spend on the advertising. Plus, if you have someone do it in-house, they truly care about the execution and the results. It's their own, they're doing it for their own company. So, so who is the co-op? Who are the members of the co-op? So we are built on uh, independent appliance stores, uh, retailers throughout uh, New York, New Jersey, um, and in the tri-state area. And uh, a, a lot of mom and pop shops that sell appliances, sell furniture. Um, and some of these businesses, two people, they run the store. Some of them are massive. They're huge online retailers. Uh, so we have a big spectrum of members. Interesting. And now do you guys run some stores as well, or are you just now the marketing agency? So we do not have any stores ourselves. Uh, we're the buying group. That's our bread and butter. So we have a 600,000 square foot warehouse. Um, we do all the purchasing, we hold the goods, and then we sell it to our members. When we sell it to our members, it's far cheaper to buy it through us than it would be to get it through the manufacturer direct because we're able to take on cash discounts and things of that nature to help bring down the price uh, point on these products. So you're actually, you're, you're not only doing the marketing, you're the buying group for the furniture as well for a lot of these stores. 
Correct. Yes, we are the. Th that's actually the um, the backbone of DMI is being the buyer of these appliances, electronics, and goods for our members. Um, that is what built the company over sixty years ago. But you know, fast forward to now, what makes us different from another buying group? Why be a member of our group versus someone else other than location? Uh, it's services. And we know marketing is number one on people's list when they're, mm. you open up a store, a lot of our appliance stores, they are excellent salespeople. They understand the product. They know how to sell the product. They know how to service it. They take care of their customers. They have no time nor desire to get right. involved in marketing. Right. Do you guys have any um, territories for your members at all? Or do you have like, you know, Bob's furniture and Mary's furniture and they're three doors away from each other and they're both buying from you? So there isn't any type of laid out territories written on paper, but there is an understanding that, look, if I have an appliance store, you know, on, on second street, I don't want to have three more stores open up with my group on second street. Cause I don't want to create competition for my own members. Um, every time someone wants to join DMI, there's a set criteria. I bring that in front of our board of directors and we review things like location, showroom, reputation, hmm. um, everything. Uh, it's important before we allow them to join our membership. And they, do they pay to be a member and then they also buy the services as well? Like, is there a, like a, almost like a franchise fee or a, do they pay to be a member first? So there is, you actually put money into the company that acts as collateral for your buying power. So there's a flat rate that we ask for $50,000. That's their money. We don't keep that but they get a percentage of that to make purchases. So we protect the other members since we are a co-op. If someone new joins, pulls $40,000 in goods and then splits town, I have the money already to cover that. So there is an investment, but it's their money. Um, we also have a membership fee. It's very minimal. Uh, it's what we kind of determine from the beginning, what keeps the operation running. I have to pay for my staff and the building and, and the machines and so forth. Um, and then we charge a small commission on each item they pull. So between that membership fee and the commission, that's what I live on to allow us to operate. Everything else, if we see a surplus at the end of the year, that goes back to the members and dividends. Oh, wow, interesting. So how many members have you got? We are sitting at 78 members currently. 78 members and all in that kind of tri-state area or? Correct. Yep. Everybody is New York, New Jersey. Uh, we're talking to some people in Pennsylvania. We have two people up in Connecticut. So our warehouse is in Hamilton, New Jersey. It's about 15 minutes away from Princeton. And is uh, have, you, have you got competitors in this space that are in other markets or competitors in your market as well? Uh, absolutely. So it, it's ironic. Competitors or, or friends, they, there's actually three other buying groups that do what we do. And I mean... Their services are, might differ, but their bread and butter is the same as ours. They buy in bulk and then they sell back to their members. Um, the four of our groups are actually part of a bigger umbrella called NECO. So we actually purchase, well, we come up with purchase uh, agreements with the manufacturers as a group. So we work together, but then ultimately we run our co-ops differently and we have our own members and our goal is to do the best we can to help our members and not want a member to jump to another co-op. So it's an interesting thing. It's kind of like you have your friends, but they're also your competitors at the exact same time.
It's interesting. How many employees have you guys got? We have currently roughly 80 people. 80 employees. Okay. So you've got, and the, and the kind of top line revenue, is that flow through revenue? Like it's, um, do you book that 500 million on your P&L or does some of that, is that just the, the volume of transactions that your customers are buying as well? That's volume of transactions. That's, that's not all revenue. Yeah. So, so the volume of transactions, a half a billion dollars in transactions, there's a lot of logistics and all, and all that flows through your warehouse too, or does some of that stuff get drop shipped direct to the consumer or to direct to your members? Uh, all of it. So the, the, the bulk majority comes through our warehouse. So, you know, we book all the appointments, the manufacturers drop it to our warehouse and then we store it and we pull it when the members need it. Uh, wow. There are dropship offerings where our members can drop loads directly to, say, a builder site or to their store. Um, sometimes there's a benefit to that. But uh, the bulk majority comes through our warehouse. No kidding. That's a lot of logistics to be able to handle all that stuff. You know, the good thing is we're, we're an FOB site. So anything that our members are responsible for all the trucking. Um, DMI, before I joined, actually had their own fleet of trucks. And it was a losing situation because what you're asking is for all the members to pay a fee to maintain trucking. Yet you have one guy who might pull merchandise once a week, half a truckload, another guy who pulls two truckloads every day. Yeah. So how do you balance that? You know? So what we decided is, okay, you handle the trucking and we'll work with trucking companies and, and try to make it as appealing as possible to help our members. But you're now responsible for the cost, meaning you control that cost, which is a benefit. Yeah, yeah. Do you, um, do you guys ever, do you coordinate the shipping and, and the, the trucking for them at all? Like, do you have a, a buying relationship with any of the bigger firms there? So, you know, we have some relationships with some of the bigger trucking companies that do certain services and we build relationships to allow them to offer deals to our members. Um, you know, the biggest thing is, we have smaller trucking companies who want to help our members. They're, they're everything. So by us working with them, it, it allows them to negotiate deals with our members. So that's in place. Um, we've tried strategies to have trucking in-house, like an outside company, but be in-house. That never seems to work. For us, logistically, everything that's, that's worked out for us is, hey, you're reputable. You have a good fleet of guys. You have trucks that are reliable. I'll work with you. I'll give you my members to talk to and they work with you. And that seemed to work the best. Yeah, that's great. I used to coach a company called Blue Grace Logistics and they've got uh, huge groups all over North America, 700 employee company, but that's kind of the stuff they do is work with groups like you guys on, on taking that pain in the ass factor off. So when did you add marketing to the, to the mix? So it, it's funny. It was something that we wanted to really when I joined the company, they kind of gave it to me as a project. Couldn't really launch it off the ground, but it was because there were so many things I had to tackle when I first joined the business back in 2010. So I kind of sat down and kind of mapped out, all right, this is what needs to happen before we even look at this area. I would say around 2017, 2018 is when we really took off of marketing. Um, but it's also around that time that we found that Marketing from outside, uh, there, there were ways our members had access to marketing that it was not working. It was mm. failing for them. They were kind of falling away from that. So the timing worked out perfectly. So about, about three, three to four years ago, we really launched marketing in-house for them. And what else do you provide as part of the co-op? 
So we have uh, product knowledge. Um, we provide, you know, help with financing. We provide help with, you know, managing your, your floor, kind of giving them some guidance since we, we know what the other members are doing. Um, we provide trade shows and uh, other, other get-togethers to kind of network and meet other members and learn from them. And uh, we're always looking for new things that we can offer to our members to bring value to what we can do for them and also to help them sell and be successful as a business. Yeah, it's interesting in the, in the franchising world that some of the, the value that good franchisors can bring to the table for the franchisees is the buying power. Because as a, as we, when I ran my first business in 1986, I was running a house painting company, but I was part of a group called College Pro Painters. And College Pro got me very big painting discounts and good deals on workers' comp and good deals on insurance. And even though I was paying them a royalty, which was pretty high, the value from everything else was almost an offset against that royalty if I'd gone and run it on my own, right? I, if I was running it on my own, there was no royalty, but I was going to be paying through the roof on everything else. So yeah, those value, those additional, and then the, the networking and the learning are powerful too. So tell me about the growth. You've, you've been with the organization for 10 years and it's doubled in size. What's changed for you in the 10 years? Uh, you know, it's a mixture of things. Online has really helped with that. A lot of people were early to adapt to online, especially some of our more aggressive members who understood the online format, understood how to market themselves, uh, get found on Google well, and they really mastered that, but consumers weren't ready. Well, over those 10 years, consumers became a lot more willing and embraced that format to make purchases, especially large items like appliances. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that was a big change. Uh, for, for DMI, you know, a lot of it was our ability to scale, you know, updating our systems internally, allowing our members to have uh, direct access to our order entry system uh, via API. So they're able to kind of streamline a lot of things. Uh, it, when I got there, I had members who were so smart, they figured out how to screen grab our order system and kind of force the entries in there. But wow. it was so dirty, you know, and if I was to make one change in my ordering system, it would throw their whole thing off. Sure. Um, so I knew right away, okay, number one, we have got to create an API system where our members can streamline that type of process. Um, and also internally understanding we have different businesses. Again, I have members who are growing at exponential rate online doing sales cross country. And I had members who were brick and mortar focused on a local community and how do I make my business work for both of those types of organizations? Mm -hmm. And it was really sitting down and mapping them out and figuring out how to help everybody without hurting anybody. So in, in all of this growth, um, was there transition with the people or have you been able to keep most of your people through the years or how's that gone? So something interesting that happened is we moved uh, in 2014, we were in Brooklyn and we had a smaller warehouse and the only way to grow is to buy a, a, or lease a bigger space at the time. Brooklyn's marketplace was already so uh, ridiculous. So we started looking and we have to find this place out in Hamilton, New Jersey at the time at 2014, kind of random, but we got a great rate for lease, uh, made sense for our business. And it was a double the size of the warehouse. Uh, but doing that also created a lot of turnover in my staff. Um, 
you know, so, and that hurt that that was six, eight months of a learning curve. Yeah. Uh, we're a very unique business. People come into DMI and they don't understand really what we're doing or why we do it or how it works. But I was fortunate. We have an incredible staff that, you know, credit to um, a staffing agency, Robert Half, that we worked with at the time. They got us a lot of quality people. And a lot of those people grew at the company, are now supervisors and managers uh, that are really contributing to the business. That's interesting. What, how would you describe your culture of your organization? So uh, it, it was very different when I first got there. Yeah. Um, my experience, I experienced a lot of different types of cultures as I grew in my career. And, you know, going from an IBM where you had frequent meetings and you had a lot of communication or, or when I worked in big pharma to working uh, at the Fed and every place was very different. And I saw certain things that worked and certain things that didn't. So when I got to DMI, I knew I wanted to create a very comfortable environment where people can talk and to communicate and express when there's a problem and work together. It was not like that when I got there. You were very divided, our office and warehouse. I know a lot of companies have that struggle. You know, people feel they're treated differently because they work in one part of the business versus another. Mm. And my goal to this day is to bridge that gap. Um, I could say that the office morale is incredible um, and just fantastic communication. Everyone is working to, to meet the common goal, right? To better the company, to help our members. And over the last two years, I think I finally made that achievement with our warehouse as well, where I think people are starting to communicate more with us. Uh, everyone feels like it's one team. And that's, that's really the culture is, is, look, we're all working at this together. The better the business does, the better we all do. So, How would you describe your role as COO? I mean, something that Harvard wrote an article years ago called the misunderstood role of the COO. How would you describe your role as a COO to your peers? Uh, I touch everything in the business. And, and it's something I say a lot when people call me and, how are you doing today, Alan? I say, oh, it's been a day. Uh, it, for me, sometimes I sit back at the end of the day and I think, did I, what did I do? And I start to think about what I accomplished for the day and wow, you know, I dealt with a problem in a warehouse and I dealt with a problem in marketing and I dealt with a problem in merchandising and I dealt with a problem in IT. So how did I do all that? That's, it's crazy. It's a lot of hats. It, it's, in, it, you're doing a little bit of everything. I would, it, the best way to describe it, it's like the potpourri of, of a job. Um, and for me, my biggest struggle is I joined the company as a director of IT. So shifting people to say, okay, I, I don't run IT anymore. Do I oversee it? Yes. Do I communicate with our manager in IT? Yes. But ultimately I'm seeing other things too. So it's pushing people as, as nicely as I can. Hey, I understand you have a problem with this. Go speak to, to my manager of IT, let him handle it. You know, that that's why he's here. I have something else to focus on. Um, yeah. Yeah. How do you actually get some of that stuff off your plate? How do you, what's, do you just say, go talk to them? That's, they're the manager or how do you, how does that conversation go? Depends who's asking, uh, you know, uh, internal staff, I'll, I'll be nice about it, but I do, I push them that direction. I say, okay, I hear your problem. I'm empathetic to the issue, but ultimately, unless it's something I can answer quickly, I say, you know, it sounds like something that so-and-so can, can work on. Why don't you throw in a help desk ticket? They'll jump on that. If the president of our company calls me or, you know, our biggest member calls me at the technical issue, 
I'm going to spearhead that and make sure it gets taken care of. Uh, you know, I, I know that if they're coming to me directly with an issue, then it's already pretty serious. So I also gauge the situation. I've, I've noticed over the years that the CEOs often don't do that very well. They tend to get a little bit more involved than they need to in areas. And it's, it's well, it's my company or I was here first. Blah, blah. How, how does your CEO work on that? Do they make sure that if it's your area, they let, you know, Hey, go talk to Alan, it's his area, or do they get involved or, 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 and if they're getting involved, how do they do it properly? So I'm pretty lucky, actually, our, what you would call CEO is the president of our board of directors. So in theory, that person can switch from year to year. Uh, we're pretty fortunate for the past couple of years, it's been the same uh, person. He's also the owner of our largest appliance store as a member. Um, so, which is great because he understands the struggles that the members have, the, the other appliance stores. And uh, he's been very good about balancing things. He tends to get involved sometimes in the negotiation of merchandise because that's his expertise. So he'll, he'll sit down and really get involved with our head buyer um, and give his opinion and kind of help determine certain things and push for better pricing. It's not a bad thing. It's certainly a good thing. Um, but he's been really good. If it's anything else in the business, a lot of times I get that CCD email or I'll get a text from him or, Hey, I got an issue that came to me. Can you, can you jump on that? And right. he kind of lets me run with it. He knows I'll go to him if I feel like it's something that we need his involvement in. What have your challenges been over the, over the last 10 years? I mean, it, especially in the transition from, you know, the head of it into the COO, what were some of the challenges you had to work through? Uh, some of our biggest challenges, you know, our warehouse, our staff, it's a union. So working with non-union and union staff, it, it, the rules can differ. Um, our biggest struggle is saying, okay, how do we build this? So everyone has the same rules without breaking a union contract. Um, that's been a huge struggle. Uh, personalities on our board of directors, people having difference of opinion, uh, you know, Unfortunate, a lot of our board members are very business focused when they're in the boardroom. Uh, they think about DMI as a group and not for their own business. But I've had guys come to me who are on the board or members who they want to see change. And it's very, very focused on what they need. That's my biggest challenge. How do you say no to a board member? How do you say no to someone who's technically your boss? Yeah. How do you say no to them? And, and also, what information do you relay to the board and what information do you hold back from the board? So, you know, I don't bother the board with day-to-day minutiae um, unless it's something that's going to impact the membership as a whole. Long-term, it's going to be a change in how they can run their business. That's when the board gets involved. You know, if, if I'm going to change our order entry system and suddenly you have to do a circle instead of a square every morning, then the board's involved because I need to make sure that they're okay with it, that they can live with it and that they're okay having our members do it. Um, all the day-to-day problems that we have, those struggles that you deal with every day, all the issues that come through my desk, I don't bother them with that. It would just stress them out anyway. Um, so I, I kind of take that all in. How do I say no to them? Uh, it took time. Uh, it took years of experience and, and really building respect with them where I can be very honest with them I feel like I'm at a point now where if someone calls me and I don't think it's a good idea, I could respectfully tell them, you know, I'm, I'm of course incredibly respectful about it, but if I don't think it's good, I'll tell them why. And I'll suggest alternatives. 
And that's how I work it out with anybody who comes to me with an issue. Mm. How about the, um, how about the unions? How do you deal with them? That's a really intriguing. And it's funny in all of our interviews on the second command podcast, I'm not sure anyone has brought up union employees yet. So this is intriguing. So it's a very, um, complicated subject. I have to tell you, uh, First, I sit down and I read the union contract a couple of times because there, like I said, there's a lot of rules that you have to follow. Um, then when I create an HR department, I brought someone in about a year ago, actually, it's about a year and a month now since I brought someone in to really run HR for us. I sat down with her and I said, look, can we go over the employee handbook and match it to our union handbook? In some places, quite literally say, please see union contract for you know, guidance. Um, in other areas where the union contract, union contracts tend to be very vague. They'll, they'll say something, but they don't really address how to handle it. If it's not in our handbook, how do we handle it? The biggest problem that I saw when I took that role on to figure out was everyone got a different answer. And they come to me and say, Alan, do I listen to him? Do I listen to her? Who do I listen to? And, and I said, look, the only way we can make it work is it needs to be documented. If it's not written down, it, it's always going to be an opinion. It, this can't be an opinion. This has to be policy. And if you know Tom comes to me today with this problem, when Billy comes to me six months from now with the same problem, my answer has to be the same, especially when it comes to HR matters. Mm-hmm. So it, it was very hard. You can't, you know, you can't give incentives to union members. You you give somebody a bonus that you're breaking contract. You can't, you can't go into what's considered independent agreements with uh, an individual in the union. Um, so you need to figure out ways that you can really reward the strong workers without hurting people and how to make it a fair workplace where if you're not a strong worker, the, every, all the rules will, will benefit those who are and those who aren't will see the difference, you know? Right. That's been such a... a um, goal of ours to figure out how to handle that. Cause I have great workers. We don't want to make rules because three people are not picking up the slack and that's yeah. been a goal. And, and I, I've got to be careful with bringing my bias into the conversation and questions as well. So I'll flip, I'll flip where I was going to go, but what do you think some of the strengths are that come to your company because it's a union shop? What, what things does it bring you that are, are that, that have proved out, proven out to be well, or good for you guys? Uh, the positives, I think it, it challenges us to be a better company and, and to be fair across the board. It's so easy to start mm-hmm. to focus on your strongest staff members sure. um, and not think, why is this person struggling or why is this person not up to par? That's interesting. Um, yeah. So with the union, I can't just say, well, give raises to my strongest workers, fire the guys who don't do well and bring new people. Mm-hmm. And I can't do that. Mm-hmm. So why is this guy not as fast as this guy or why does this guy not care as much about what his, his work is, you know, and, and really work with them. So it forces us to train better. It forces us to focus better on staff. Does it force you to fire the underperformers versus keeping them for six more months too? Because you want, like, do the, do the underperformers get in the way of, of things where you, it, it forces you to get rid of them in the right way? Uh, absolutely. You So with a union, you can't just fire somebody unless right. it's something egregious, like they walk up and punch a manager in the face. Right, um, right, right. So it, 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 it means 
you always need a performance plan. It starts with that verbal warning and then there's write-ups that go along with it. But I've told everybody, I don't just want to write someone up with the intention to get them to be terminated. Correct. You want to write them up with the intention to help them improve. Yes. And, and the difference that our shop steward has seen is at first, I think he was a little apprehensive to work with me, but I said, look, I want to help the staff. I want, if someone is struggling, let's find a way to make it work. Um, which I think is actually good, which is good management. Trying. <laughs> it, it, it continues to be an ongoing balance, but I definitely see a, a tip in the right direction for sure. Sure. Now, with with some of the offerings that you have on the marketing side to your to your members, um, what are you noticing that they are or that's working well for them or that's easier for you guys to put in place for them? I mean, the easiest thing to do is social media. We, we found right away the way to really get people kicked off. And what we did is we don't believe in this mentality where, OK, you're a member of DMI. You have to do this uh, uh, marketing program or you have to buy into this idea. It, everything's opt-in. Right. You don't have to do it. Look, we're going to do it. It's you, your dollars in the company is paying for it. So you only benefit from it. But if you want to do your own marketing strategy, you want our hands off of it. No problem. Uh, we have over 60% of our members opted in at this point of that. I think at this point, we're at hundred percent opt-in for our top 10 members for so, and these are members who they know marketing, um, and the very first offering was social media, Facebook. And hey, you put out some good offerings, you get some likes, you get some followers, that's organic advertising. And explain to them what that means. We can continue helping you boost your, your uh, brand without paying for it. it it's, it's actually a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, versus Google, it, advertising on Google is incredibly complicated. It's, it's super hard to do. Um, my marketing person, she is a whiz. She really figured out a way to make sense of it all. And it's a lot, it's a lot of work. And, and I, every day I appreciate what she's doing because I know the complications that get involved there and the, the constant changing that they do with AdWords. Sure. Is, um, is there any area that you outsource on that for the co-op or do you do those services in-house? Primarily it's in-house. Uh, we do outsource from time to time and we do it for knowledge learning. You know, we, there was one company that we kind of inherited uh, from one of our brands and they did at marketing. And we started working them almost apprehensive because again, we're always suspicious of these outside companies and they only care about themselves. And we found a good one. This particular company really cares about their customers. They really took care of us. They're not overselling us or, or trying to hurt us in any way. Um, so I, I have to say that that's been very beneficial uh, and we learn from them, you know, um, but primarily everything's done in-house. Interesting. All right. So how about your um, stuff with the board itself? What do you, um, what are your meeting rhythms like with them and and what are your meeting rhythms like with your leadership team internally? So it's funny you ask that because actually I just got done with uh, meeting SOC um, and that was very eye-opening. The board meetings are monthly. So every month we meet with them. It's about two hour meeting. It depends. It can be a little faster, a little longer, depending on the subject. Uh, and with that, the structure is pretty good. We have an agenda, we send it out, we, we follow the minutes. Um, that was a good structure in place before my time. The meeting of my internal staff before I came to DMI, non-existent. 
there were no meetings at all. Immediately, I started to meet regularly with my team when I was running IT. When I shifted into running operations, I continued meeting with them for a while with the hope to kind of say, okay, you know, you're in charge of IT now, you do this with them. And then maybe I'll jump in once a month to make sure that your weekly meetings, everything is good and bring me in anytime you need me. But I don't want to be a babysitter and I don't want to come off as a micromanaging. I don't want to do that at all. Uh, and I'm working on trying to come up with meeting cadences for the rest of the group. Uh, I'm currently actually working on it to see what makes the most sense for us. Um, oh. We do have a business development team that gets together. I, I kind of handpicked people from different parts of the business to join me once a month mm-hmm. to go over things like, hey, what should our vision be? What should our uh, core values be? DMI never had those things in place. And to me, I, th- I think that's incredibly important. We're growing as a larger business now. We need that type of stuff in place now. So people know, they, they know what to expect out of us. And someone new who joins the company should understand, oh, okay, this is their values. This is their vision. Uh, but I decided that I shouldn't be determining that myself. Right. And our board of directors, Didn't I don't know to. if that they, they don't know the internal uh, relationships as well. So I decided to bring people from other groups in the business in and let's kind of map it out and brainstorm and do it as a team. That's cool. You're going about it in the right way for sure. Um, curious about the changes that happened because of COVID. What happened to the organization for you guys? And you guys were like in New York. So you guys got hit pretty hard back in March, April, May. What changes did you have to go through as an organization to get through that? Uh, it was crazy. I remember the date, March 16th. It was a Monday. Uh, we got together and it was funny, you know, I was meeting with some people and they kind of came to my office to meet about something. I said, so we're going to have to do work from home. And they came and they said, oh no, we're here to meet about a dealer trip. I said, dealer trip? No one's going anywhere. I said, we're going to full lockdown. No, we're not. Said, yes, we are. So what I did is I said, we, we need to figure out a schedule where we can have people work from home, but we're a very on-site business. So we recognize quickly we need a hybrid schedule. How do we bring minimal staff into the office that need to be here while allowing people to have that social distancing and, and not be worried about the virus? Mm-hmm. We've never had that before. Work from home prior to COVID was almost kind of like, you <laughs> mean day off? Right. Uh, now, I think people realize, oh, wow, we can do work from home. And I could say with, with confidence that even when things go back to some sense of normal, we'll, we'll have the ability to do work from home as well. Why yeah. not? It's working. It's pretty intriguing watching companies that, especially some of the older firms, like I was speaking with the, the second in command from AARP, the American Association of Retired People, right? And they're a, a class, they're 1,400 employees. There are a lot of baby boomers working there. And the CEO is like, there is no way we would ever have let anybody work from home. And then we said three days later, 1,400 people working from home. And now they're like, shit, I don't know why we have an office. Like it's it's pretty extraordinary. The changes, the you know, what if we could, right? Which is actually a really interesting mindset to bring into our companies today, not just around work from home, but around anything, around change. What if we could, you know? Biggest, my biggest struggle coming to DMI, I was, it's funny, even when you go back to the tech side of DMI, when I got there, everything was physical. Uh, All our hardware was physical and it was a mess. And I said, you know, when I was at the Fed, something that was very intriguing that was happening there is they were going all virtual. 
So mm. I started to really research this VM view and, and virtual machines and, and really dig into this. Came to DMI, saw that they had some semblance of it, a Citrix system in the warehouse, but it wasn't great. And I said, what if, what if we go virtual? And the first thing, one of the person who was in charge of our billing department at the time, she said, you can't. I said, why? Because that's not how we do it. So why not? <laughs> why can't we try? And literally I said, my goal, my very first major goal was everything will be virtual. If I was, my office was in Brooklyn, I lived out in the middle of New Jersey. If mm -hmm. a server went down in the middle of the night, that was an hour and a half before I even got on site to reboot a server. Mm -hmm. What if I could do it from home? Mm -hmm. And we did, we, we went all virtual. I could reboot something at three in the morning from my house. It, it was so life-changing. Game-changing, yeah. Business. Oh, absolutely. So, and that happens across the board. Why do we do it this way? Because we do. I've got another question that I had about IT and then I'll wrap with my final one, but curious, my bias around IT had often been that IT is the tail that wags the dog. IT people are very smart. They want to build cool shit and nobody else in the business understands them at all. It's like, you know, you walk in, you go, we need the latest 82 gigs, 74B. I'm like, well, what's that do? Well, it prevents this and this. I'm like, oh shit. And yeah, we need two of them. I'm like, all right, well, how much do they cost? 74 grand. I'm like, fuck, like each, whoa. You know, so I don't understand how to argue with you. So then I walk over to sales and go, you guys aren't selling enough, well, <laughs> right? Has your view of IT changed at all now that you are COO? Do you see it from a different perspective? I do, but I think in a positive way. Um, yeah. You know, when I, when I, I knew going in and I learned this very early on, which helped shape my entire career was this mentality that you're either a tech or you're in management. You can't be both. Mm. And, and it, it's quite different that career path. Now I chose clearly to go in the management side of it, but I, I'll always have a, a place in my heart for it. That's kind of where I broke into my professional career. Sure. And it, it is that balance of a budget versus what you should spend. Because as an IT person, oh, you always want the latest and greatest. You always want to buy it. Oh, $100,000. Yeah, but it's so cool. And, it, well, and you're right. Like the reality is stuff always could be better and leaner and faster and more integrated. And like, yes, I agree. At what cost, right? And then, well, and, but, then but, but then on the ops cost, we often don't invest enough in IT because of, of a cost, right? So you know, what's helped that balance and, and really I've become so focused on, and it's almost like a buzzword for me is scalability. What do we buy today that I can use five years from now? Give mm -hmm. me, you want to give me three years ROI? I'll give you five. And mm -hmm. if I give you that, well, the cost is so much less. And we do, we'll, we'll spread a cost of something over normally it's three years. Great. Well, if I can go back to my board and say, you know, this piece, this license, this machine we bought lasted us for five, six, seven years. Oh, it was worth that higher cost back when we bought it because we didn't have to buy it again. We didn't have to replace it. Um, and, and it's that mindset that's changed as I went into my role today versus being IT only. That's interesting. All right. If we were to go back, roll the camera back to Alan graduating from college, getting ready to start off in his career, what advice would you give yourself back then? Oh, you know, uh, <laughs> It, it would, it, it's so hard, a couple things, but I would say probably the, the biggest piece is just listen, just absorb. When you're brand new, 
people want to share everything. A lot of the guys who have experience, they love to brag, but when they brag, they're sharing, they're knowledge sharing and just take it all in. You know, when you're young, you want to share your own ideas. You're so fast. Look what I could do. Look how I could do it. Instead of saying, Hey, how, how would you handle that situation and learn from them? Um, over the years, I've learned that trick and it's been so helpful in my career. Just, just listen. That's interesting. Very cool. Alan Joskowitz, the COO for, um, I can't remember the name of the company, Dynamics Marketing, COO for Dynamics Marketing and member of the CO Alliance. Thanks very much for sharing with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That was awesome. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.